0: Hello, and welcome to What on Earth, the podcast of the Environmental Investigation Agency, or EIA. The pernicious effects of plastic pollution around the world are undeniable. Toxic plastics and microplastics are now found in every environment on the planet, from frozen Antarctica to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. They're in the food chains of many species, and they're in our bodies. EIA recognized the problem early, and is proud to have helped lead the charge for a new Global Plastics Treaty to address the problem, work on which continues this month with a second session of the UN's International Negotiation Committee or INC for short. I'm Paul Newman, EIA Senior Press and Communications Officer and today I'm joined by Ocean Campaign Leader Christina Dixon and Ocean Campaigner Jacob keane Hammerson to talk about what we can expect from INC2 when it opens in Paris on the 29th of May. Jacob, Chris, welcome and thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts with us.
1: Thanks Paul.
2: Well, thanks, Paul. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure to have you
0: back, guys. Now, Chris, perhaps you could get us started by giving us a recap of how we got from a virtual standing start to last year's UN Environment Assembly agreeing the need for a global plastics treaty in a relatively short space of time.
1: Absolutely, Paul. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's been kind of a whirlwind year or two, actually, but this decision to negotiate a new plastics treaty, it didn't Sort of come out of nowhere, as I'm sure you can imagine. It's actually been a, a years long undertaking, um, and it really, it really sort of goes back to the fact that you know we've seen over the past decade, in particular, the impact of plastic pollution in in every environment on Earth, um, and we're now increasingly aware of how pervasive and problematic it is, and also how voluntary initiatives to deal with the problem have been essentially entirely ineffective. So. When we look at what's happening around the world, we've got a patchwork of legislation in different countries and also regionally. We also have commitments by industry, um, but nothing really at the global level that's going to coordinate action and actually deliver the change which is needed on a kind of planetary scale, um, which is what we're looking for. So um, there's been really strong leadership to get us to this point of negotiating a treaty, particularly from. Pra- uh, particularly from Peru and Rwanda, who led the initial resolution in UNEA, which started the kind of discussions about whether we should have a a new plastics treaty. Um, And then since then, countries in what's called the High Ambition Coalition, or the HAC, um, have really been driving this process and trying to push the level of ambition in the negotiations um, as high as possible. So now we find ourselves at actually coming up to almost the midpoint which is quite terrifying of the negotiations towards a new plastics treaty because i feel like we literally only just started but actually what was agreed um, in nairobi last year was to negotiate the text for this new agreement by the end of 2024 and then open the agreement for adoption in 2025 so we're coming up to the second round of negotiations out of a total of five
0: Now, you and Jacob attended the first session um, of the International Negotiating Committee last year in Uruguay. What what, what were the main highlights or breakthroughs of that first meeting?
1: So I would say it was a meeting of um, highs and lows, but for the most part, um, some progress was made towards getting us where we need to go. I think for me, on a personal level, the things that I found most Positive or exciting is that since the resolution was adopted in Nairobi last year, we've seen a really important narrative shift in how we talk about the problem of plastic pollution. So uh, we've gone from a few years ago, the world viewing this really as something that's just plastic in the oceans, you know, something that whales are eating which is definitely happening and definitely a problem but now the understanding of the issue is much broader than that it's something that's related to the climate emergency it's driving biodiversity loss it's also impacting on human health and human rights basically at every stage of the plastics life cycle and hearing that message come loud and clear from uh, governments as well as civil society at the negotiations was really really exciting Um, I don't know Jacob I'm sure you have some other takeaways as well
2: yeah, I think um for me what was really uh, uh inspiring in Uruguay was you're, you know you're in these in these negotiations in a large air conditioned conference center and in the kind of hubbub of these meetings you can kind of maybe lose track a bit about why you're actually there and I think some of the statements we heard from Pacific island countries and the environmental justice groups who are on the front line of the build out of these petrochemical and plastics facilities you know them sharing their real life lived experience of the issue kind of really helped to remind us exactly why we're there exactly why we're doing this and the um you know what's at stake if we don't get this right so i I found that really inspiring Excellent stuff.
0: Now it's, it's been almost six months since that meeting. Um, what have you guys been doing since then? I'm sure you're not just been sat around twiddling your thumbs, waiting for Inc Two to come around.
1: I sort of wish that we had. <laughs> I don't know, Jacob,
2: do you want to take that one? Yeah, so one of the main outcomes of the meeting uh, in Uruguay was the secretary was asked to produce uh, what's called the options an options paper, which is really just putting out on the table all of the different elements that this treaty could include. Uh, so as a stakeholder, EIA were invited by the UN, as all stakeholders were, to p- produce our own options paper before the country before countries made their submissions. So what we did is presented our vision for what the essential elements of the treaty would be. And uh, EIA's kind of really key, key demands includes provisions to cap and phase down plastics production, including removing some of the most hazardous and problematic polymers and chemical additives that are in those. Uh, we also call for kind of product design measures um, and interventions really all across the life cycle of plastics. And at EIA, we're looking at the treaty as a really, as a kind of uh, a whole issue. So we've also done a lot of thinking and a lot of pushing for the institutional arrangements and provisions that are necessary for the treaty to be really functional. So that includes proper, stable, predictable financing for countries to help implement this treaty once it's agreed and ratified. So we produce that. We worked with other stakeholders and then governments to uh, highlight what our priorities would be. And then uh, subsequently this options paper was produced. So that was produced a a few weeks ago at the beginning of April. It was like a mini Christmas for the people working on the treaty. So now we've been really, once that's out, we're now gearing up for the negotiations and um, exchanging views and coordinating with civil society and governments and one other highlight, I guess, of what we've been up to since then is we worked with other organizations to draft an open letter to the secretariat. So that's really highlighting what we see as some key issues and some key resolutions to those issues in the process. And that's about just making sure that it's the process is as transparent as possible and the advice and input to the negotiations are uh, widely available to everyone, and also to ensure that this process is free of conflict of interest, because you can imagine plastics, it's a huge industry, there's lots of in- interests involved, and this really needs to be, negotiations need to be taken in, in good faith, and uh, you know, without the influences and interests of big business who really stand to benefit from perpetuating the plastics issue. I don't
0: understand to lose if it goes ahead and actually sort of checks it. Uh, Chris, what are you expecting at INC2? You said earlier it's this kind of approaching the midpoint in, in, in the negotiation process. Is there uh, any particular um, topics coming up at, at this next session that you're interested in?
1: Yeah. So if um, the options paper was like, policy Christmas, I'm trying to think of like an good <laughs> analogy and I can't, I started this sentence without thinking about the end of it. Um, the thing that is gonna be like the big Christmas gift is a zero draft text of the new treaty for INC 3, which is coming up in Nairobi in November. Um, this is what a lot of member states are calling for. Um, you know, We need to be able to move now into substantive discussion about you know, what's actually going in the treaty and what the text might look like. So it's really critical that these negotiations in Paris can take us to a point where by the end of the week, a request can be made to the chair um, to prepare a zero draft of the text for INC 3. So that means at this meeting, we need to really move beyond the kind of narrative, high level kind of conceptual scope issues that were being discussed at INC 1 and transition now into into substance. So the options paper is basically the basis of the discussions that will happen in Paris. So that's what negotiators will be using to kind of guide the conversations. Um, this options paper is a sort of compendium of, of, of almost everything, like a wish list of a plastics treaty. And um, in my ideal scenario, we retain, you know, the vast majority of it, but there will be a kind of process of review, discussion, and probably, you know, getting rid of some elements, so that only then the elements that are going to be retained are put into the zero draft. Um, What's going to happen at INC2 is that the negotiations will need to be structured in order to enable that that conversation to happen so one of the requests that came out of the last meeting is that um, going into this meeting we move into two uh, contact groups or working groups so basically you know half of the delegates will be discussing the kind of core measures so the things like how do we do a cap on production how do we reform the global waste trade um, how do we define environmentally sound management of plastic waste and you know where does recycling fit that's kind of the kind of core obligations and control measures the actual sort of what we want to do and then another group will be talking about the how so how will it be financed Um, what arrangements will be necessary to deliver those objectives and it's really important that these conversations are happening in parallel because the problem that you could have is you design the best most exciting most ambitious treaty possible but then nobody's talked about who's going to pay for it and how Um, and as we've seen in basically every other multilateral environmental Agreement, the conversation about who picks up the tab um, is going to be a really divisive and complicated issue to resolve. So it would be a real mistake to leave those conversations till, you know, INC4, INC5, because then we're going to run out of time to have a good conversation on financing. Um, and for me personally, you know, I find the financing issue really um, interesting because we've had a lot of countries saying, we want to see polluters pay. So yes, I agree, I would like to see polluters pay, but how do we channel that financing into the instrument? But how do we also make sure that the financing is, is stable and predictable enough um, to deliver long-term sustainable change and basically support a just transition for those, those countries that are going to need to do a lot of work to meet the obligations of the agreement? So I could go into the, the weeds of this in, in great detail, but just <laughs> to say that those are the things that will be on the table at INC2 as well as some kind of procedural issues that were not resolved. Um, So we could actually see some votes uh, on topics um, quite early on in INC2 around things like the rules of procedure, um, which were only provisionally applied at INC1, and also um, the Bureau, which is the group of countries which basically shepherd uh, the negotiations. Um, That Bureau wasn't fully established uh, at INC1. So it means that, um, you know, the Bureau has been operating at kind of reduced capacity, and we really need to see a fully formed bureau that represents all the different regions of the world in order to kind of have a a strong negotiation so those are the sort of different topics um and i guess there'll be many hours of of corridor chats and late nights um munching on baguettes in a conference room that air-conditioned conference room that jacob (laughs) so adores
0: (laughs) jacob obviously um EIA is an NGO, so we're not directly involved in the official negotiations per se. But what has been the role uh, 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 played by NGOs such as ourselves to date? Um, what, what kind of voice do we have in the um, in, in the process?
2: Yeah. So, as you're, you're, you're quite right. This is a kind of member state-led negotiation between countries. So uh, we don't have a formal role in the negotiations per se, but we've been involved in the process. And Chris alluded to this earlier. The process to get us to a point where we are negotiating a treaty. Civil society, NGOs, um, stakeholders, rights holders, they. Place, have played such a fundamental role in getting to us to this point and um, driving the conversation. So EIA, I would say, we play a bit of a thought leadership role along with our colleagues as to uh, creating a vision that uh, of what the treaty could be. So I we do a lot. We spend a lot of time between ourselves really thinking about w- what are the necessary provisions, what 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 is the necessary structure of this treaty to really deal with the problem at hand, and then we work with our colleagues in civil society to create that vision through you know our different campaigning tools but we also you know have meetings with governments and um other intergovernmental organizations to uh present that vision and um talk about why we think um it's important
0: so we we get the opportunity within that in that case to to raise our concerns um, with the parties outside of the context of the negotiations and say to them this is what you should be thinking about or this is what we think you should be thinking about that kind of thing yeah uh,
2: absolutely and i think also within the context of the meeting itself stakeholders are given the opportunity after member states have spoken to put, to put across their views on the various agenda points um so st- we we have a chance to to put that vision forward During the meetings as well, Um, and I think it's really important that the the the, um, ability to engage in a meaningful manner for stakeholders and rights holders is protected within the context of the negotiations, uh, and that the voices are heard and these people aren't squeezed out in that kind of a way. So yeah, and we you know we also provide we, uh, we do a lot of coordinating with civil society, which is a really important important piece to ensure that we are all um, kind of connected and and discussing these things and putting forward our vision in a a kind of equitable way. Excellent. Thank you for that.
0: Uh, Chris, do you you anticipate any significant problems in the course of these negotiations or, or do you think most of the parties involved are all generally pulling in the same direction?
1: Oh, Paul! Uh, you
0: know. <laughs> Sorry, I knew, I knew where that was going to go. For but... last,
1: <laughs> you know, I think yes, I, I can see a, a multitude of problems. Um, however, I am uh, an optimist, and I like to think about you know where there is alignment and general consensus, and then and then think about well, how do we address some of those challenges? And I think when I was reading the options paper, I thought there is there are some some aspects which are very strong, and I think the paper in in and of itself actually was was quite good, um, naturally, at room for improvement. But it did kind of, for example, um, it touched on the fact that there there are, there is general agreement about what the objective of the treaty should be. Um, and I know that sounds really silly, but we haven't actually agreed on what the objective of a plastics treaty is supposed to be yet. And that will be something that negotiators need to, to reckon with in Paris. Um, but the options for potential objectives broadly all captured the fact that plastic pollution is something affecting both health and the environment. Um, so I think that was actually really positive, you know, that it wasn't leaning in one direction or another. It was saying actually that the objective should capture both of these things. Because they're both important, um, I think there's also agreement on things like yes, we should do something about you know product design. We should do something about waste management and recycling. But the kind of more tricky elements are: do we do that in a, a global approach or um, more of a national approach? This kind of top-down or bottom-up. And what we started to see at INC1 was some of the kind of geopolitics playing out there. You know, countries you know like. Saudi Arabia, the US, for example, saying that they would rather go for more of a national level approach, which could also potentially be, you know, considered to be a, a voluntary approach. Um, that would be something that's a bit like the Paris Agreement, um, where it's nationally determined contributions. And you know, I think we might be able to agree on the fact that it hasn't been a particularly effective instrument in dealing with its objectives. So, you know, EIA's position, and this is shared by a lot of the member states, is that we need, you know, common. Global rules on various aspects of this problem. Otherwise, we're not going to get anywhere. And for us, you know, what's particularly important is the kind of upstream, so the things like production chemicals. Um, you know, before we even get to product design, we need to have common global approaches for those aspects. And that is going to be challenging. You know, I think that chemicals is one of the issues that wasn't really addressed early on, and now we're starting to see you know, ideas kind of floating about, well, how do we deal with the 13,000 chemicals that are used in plastic, a quarter of which are substances of concern, um, but we don't have a lot of information about a lot of those chemicals. So you know, what do we need to put in place in terms of transparency requirements, um, in terms of restricting access to market if there's no data available about products? And, and when I say products, I mean also polymers as a product. So these are the really tricky things. we're getting into quite technical areas but without dealing with polymers and chemicals we're not really going to have a successful treaty so I think how we approach that listing that criteria and what we want to agree now between you know now and 2024 versus what might be something that's left to a decision of the conference of the parties at a later date that's the sort of the tricky elements which are going to for sure create some division amongst member states Um, and we want to make sure that you know whatever we put into the treaty between now and 2024 is flexible enough to strengthen over time Um, you know i mentioned these thirteen thousand chemicals that are in plastics Um, there's a lot of information that we're still acquiring and what's come out loud and clear is that we need to act with the precautionary principle in mind, so we need to protect human health and the environment with the information that we have, but we also need to keep gathering information and updating that list that goes into the treaty of the the polymers and chemicals of concern. It's not going to be something that's solid, it needs to be flexible so we can update it as we get more information. Um, I think all of this is possible and i think what's in the options paper and what's in the member state submissions indicates that there's agreement that we need to tackle these things it's just how do we do it um, and how ambitiously do we do it that's the sort of and who's going to pay i don't <laughs> I keep going that, on about this but no, i that's can't always, forget that's always the issue who's going to pay you've got to um, fo- follow
0: the money and find out where it comes from
1: <laughs> right exactly yeah
0: um we, we talked earlier um jacob about, about the kind of voice that organizations like ourselves can have at these at these kind of negotiations but what about the fossil fuel lobby i know that you know we've major petrochemical firms um in the recent past have planned an increase in the production of plastics because they're looking to offset the anticipated financial losses from having to uh, adapt to climate change and seeing a, a move away from fossil fuels and petrochemicals so do you see its army of lobbyists being a problem at this treaty uh, is it already
2: uh well how long have you got uh no yeah so i i i really do think you know i did speak earlier about the uh, right uh, the importance of uh stakeholders and uh, people having their voice heard but i think really it's a question of what is in the public interest to you know protect human health and protect the environment from plastic pollution and what is in the interest of the private interests of fossil fuel and petrochemical companies who are seeking to expand plastics production regardless of the negative externalities that they are impacting on the world so then that raises the question as to how um, how do those interests allow you to meaningfully engage in a negotiation about dealing with the issue so is there a fundamental and irreconceivable conflict of interest between the the business of plastic producers and ending plastic pollution the problem. We would say that that potentially is too far of a jump to make for those uh, lobbyists to be engaging in the treaty in a way that is uh, pulling in in the direction towards achieving its goal. So I think there are real questions about whether or not those, the access to those uh, negotiations should be prioritized for industry lobbyists or people on the front lines uh, facing the issue and, and how we uh, engage in those discussions. So I think we would be looking for strong conflict of interest policies and safeguards for those spaces and, and how the information is, is being shared, how the f- debate is being framed. Um, I think there's a really clear example from the Framework Convention on Tobacco Controls for example, where they were looking at, as the name suggests, the health concerns of tobacco, and they came to the conclusion that the tobacco industry, that conflict of interest was too deep for them to engage properly in the negotiations towards this convention. And I think that's a discussion that needs to be had around these INCs uh, and how... And how are we going to protect these spaces appropriately? I think I'd like to mention one other, other thing is that there is going to be access issues in Paris as to the amount of numbers, number of people that can access these negotiations. So who do we want as civil society, I suppose, who do we want there speaking to the issue? Is it the people who stand to make money or the people who stand to lose from the expansion of these plastics? Like production facilities or or just the kind of continued pollution and yeah again, I, it go- say, it I, I guess that's a
0: particular issue when you've got different degrees of funding for those two uh, voices you've got the the people who are going to be impacted by the issue having relatively little funding and the people who are creating much of the problem being funded up to the gills so that, there's no parity there at all is there
2: Absolutely, absolutely, and I think we really need to think about how we are enabling access for the people who are on the front lines who are typically already marginalized and um, you know financially not capable to come to come all the way to Paris, spend all that money on a hotel, and then like show up to this meeting and it's you know it's a real uneven playing field and just to go back to something that we've mentioned a few times, the polluter pays element of the this, the discussion if a polluter itself is contributing to the discussion about how they pay they are going to it's it's really fundamental for this treaty as chris has already mentioned the polluter pays but they pay for what is needed to end plastic pollution not what they want to pay for so that's just an example of a discussion that needs to be safeguarded in order to remove the conflict of interest so that uh, uh, the conclusion that comes to is the one that is best for ending plastic pollution which is the aim of this treaty and the resolution that came to it you can't credibly have the fox discussing how to best defend the chitin house can you
0: really <laughs> it's not the way forward exactly okay well um i hope you guys have a, a an interesting experience there and hope uh, as much of it goes your ways as, as we can get and um, i hope you'll come back in uh june and, and tell us how it went
2: yeah always happy to join the podcast paul <laughs> <laughs> Thank same
0: well, thank, thank you very thank you both very much for joining us today it's, it's, it's been very informative now if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast please watch this space for future episodes and check out our website at eia internationalorg to find out more about our work thank you very much for joining us and wherever you are stay safe out there